This is Graphic Novel TK, your podcast guide to comic book publishing. Welcome to Graphic Novel TK. I'm Gina Gagliano. And I'm Allison Wilgus. So we do this podcast that's called Graphic Novel TK. <laughs> and mostly Graphic Novel TK is hour-long interviews talking to a specific person about a specific publishing job. Yeah, like, let's ask some publishing professional a million teeny, tiny, weird questions about their job, basically. About design, or about managing editorial, or about some sort of aspect of publishing, like negotiating a contract. How does it work? Uh, this episode is not that. This episode <laughs> is a Q&A episode. Um, some of you who have been listening to us in the past kindly sent along some questions that you have about publishing. And um, when we reached out on Twitter for some more questions, we got a number of additional questions from people. And we're going to try to tackle them all so that we are not only giving you an in-depth look at comics publishing life, but also dealing with the specific questions, concerns, issues that you have about comics publishing. So of course, the caveat we have to offer here is that we have very specific jobs inside of publishing. And while we both have a pretty good amount of different experience, if there, there's going to be points where we're going to be like, okay, so it's my understanding that this how this works, but you might want to check up with somebody who's this is their actual job. Uh, but we'll kind of see how this goes. Although that related, we also we're going to give. Uh, yeah. So tell up- us about your specific job, Allison, <laughs> yeah. and your understanding of what it is. Because we, we, we realized that we hadn't actually talked about what we do when we're not doing this podcast since we started doing this podcast. And we started recording this thing almost a year ago at this point. And some stuff's kind of shifted, especially for you. But we'll we'll get to you in a second. Um, so right now, I'm spending most of my time finishing up. Um, the same graphic novel series that I was working on the last time we talked about our jobs, which is Cronin. It's a graphic novel duology with Tor. Uh, book one got turned in a few months ago, and now I'm finishing up book two. Um, the very excellent Nikki Smith has been working as an anchor with me on book two and thus saving, probably literally saving my life. I think I would have thrown myself out a window if I had ink another book. <laughs> um, but, uh, I'm sort of going through those inks and finishing things up, and I'll be turning that in soon. So and next my, year, you will have two books coming out. Yeah, I have one coming out in February and one coming out in September, which is so crazy. exciting. Uh, and when I'm also finishing up work on the Mars Challenge, which is a book about space Mars? flight. Yeah, M- Mars mostly. Really? Uh, I know. Mars, you say. <laughs> that Wyeth Yates is uh, illustrating and uh, Robin Chapman is editing, and that's getting inked right now so that's going to get finished up pretty soon and right now it's just in the territory of like we got notes back from our fact checkers and now we have to fix all the stuff we screwed up but like that's a good thing because it's really cool we have these fact checkers who are helping us out um and the rest of the time um i'm doing some freelance editorial work which has been really fun it's been really interesting because i've spent a lot of time being a cartoonist and a writer but i it's been very interesting doing the specific editorial job. I've done editorial work before, but this is a very big team with a lot of people on it. Uh, it's with a particular circumstances I haven't done before. So I'm learning a lot and it's been really, it's a super weird project in a lot of ways. It's not, it's not normal to have so many people working on a book. They had a book tour. It's very exciting. And I've gotten to 
be in the trenches in a different way than I have previously, which has been really great, especially in the context of also recording this podcast at the same time. Because shockingly, I really like learning new things about the publishing industry. Yes, we, we are all shocked and alarmed by that revelation, Allison. I'm sorry to be the one to tell you this, but I'm a nerd about publishing. <gasps> Gasp. Anyway, Gina Gagliano, what have you been up to? I mean, because surely you're still doing basically the same stuff, right? You know, like star publicist and admired and liked by all. That's just, you're still doing that same stuff, right? Thanks, Allie. Uh, Well, when we started this podcast, I was working over it for a second, doing the marketing and publicity there. And since then, I have gotten a new job uh, being the publishing director of Random House Graphic, which is a an all new comics publisher that just got started this year. Um, And we're doing kids and YA graphic novels of all shapes and sizes and kinds. And so it's been really fun. I have been learning a lot of things. Um, Actually, like doing these interviews on the podcast has been instrumental in me learning a lot of things about how various people's jobs work, how processes of things work, all the stuff. So um, this podcast has been really great, uh, which is exciting for me. And also I have this new job, which is really great, too. I think we both had the experience of this podcast making us realize that we have questions in our other job that we should be asking that we maybe didn't think about. Like, oh, you know, I didn't even think about that maybe being a thing that I needed to go check up on, which has been sort of very useful. I've been I've been blindsided by slightly less stuff than I otherwise might have been. And indeed, one of the questions that we got from our listeners was, in fact, from one of the people that we've interviewed previously, who tweeted at us to say... Why do we do this? <laughs> um, I think not meaning why do we have this podcast, but perhaps also meaning why do we have this podcast, but generally meaning why why are do we, we signing yourself for, for even more work when comics. we're already both very busy people? Or? No, but also just why comics? Oh yeah, well I guess I mean you know kind of the non cynical interpretation of the question. <laughs> Because I um, love comics, Gina. They're, um, that sounds sarcastic. I really do <laughs> exactly. like comics very much. Yes. The people are awesome. The books are awesome. It's true. I genuinely love doing comics, and it is great to talk to people about the parts of it that I don't understand. And it's great when it's your job in a podcast so that it's not embarrassing to ask a bunch of questions. So... Gina, would you like to dive into Let's see how many of these we can get through. Okay, so... Gina has made a very handy list of all the questions we got asked because she's extremely organized. Indeed. So uh, we have subdivided um, the questions that we've got into a few different categories. Most of them are about pitching books because pitching books is super stressful. Usefully, it is a part of the publishing process that I know a lot more about than I did when we actually recorded the episodes about pitching books. So I can try to talk about that with a little more authority. So go all of you for asking these useful questions. Um, so we, we've divided these questions in the categories of getting noticed, which we're going to tackle first, and then pitches, uh, and then agents, and then uh, miscellaneous, uh, yes. which I have entitled other publishing stuff, uh, which is where I put all the questions where I was like, this does not apply to either of those three categories. So we will get to the miscellaneous stuff last. Um, there's a lot of like very good and also kind of weird questions there, but that are awesome. But getting noticed first. Um, so, of course, getting notice is a, a thing that 
a lot of cartoonists would like to do, especially if you're someone who is listening to this podcast thinking, will this podcast tell me how to get a graphic novel book deal? (laughs) Getting noticed, probably a vital part of that. Um, So our first question is, is joining the Society of Children's Books Writers and Illustrators, which is SCBWI, is that a good idea from a networking perspective? I really enjoy writing panels at cons, and most members gush about membership really helping them. It seems like a good way to meet like-minded folk. So we uh, were looking over these questions when we started, and Allie had a an excellent well, comment. Well, I was basically like, I've heard of this, but I definitely am not a member, and I don't know if I know anybody who's a member. But here's the thing. If you're going to panels and talking with people who are doing stuff like the stuff that you do, and they're telling you, I'm a member of this organization, and it's been great for me, then probably you should think about it. it's. That's the thing. Like, comics is really big, and it can feel tiny because we all know each other, but like... You know, we were talking to Jenny Holm like uh, a few months ago, and her career is super different than mine. She's doing very different kinds of books. She's at a very different kind of publisher. So things are going to be useful for her that aren't useful for me. So I kind of feel like you answered your own question here personally. Like, yeah. if- um, you know, I was thinking about this, and I was kind of like, my initial reaction is to be like, yes, you know, I know a lot of authors who are part of SCBWI. I know a lot of people find it really helpful to go to do their networking events. They always have good editors and agents come to them. But then I was like, well, let me talk about my personal experience. And I realized that I have never actually been to an SCBWI event, (laughs) Uh, despite like having set some SCBWI meet and greets up for various authors who are out of town and things like that. Like I've, I know a lot of people involved with this organization, but I, I've never been there. And I do know some comics editors who have been to SCBWI events and, you know, they have these conferences, there's lots of panels, but then one of the components is a chance to like meet with editors one-on-one or have a group critique session or have your manuscript pre-read and all of that sort of thing. And I know comics editors who have been reluctant to go to them, even if SCBWI is like footing the bill for you to go to SCBWI Arizona and like flying you out because they maybe meet one comics person in all the people that they meet. Is it mostly picture books? It's mostly children. It's all children's books. So it's mostly the other kinds of children's books, picture books, chapter books, middle grade. Yeah. Why? I mean, that said, like, Dan Santat, who is an amazing cartoonist, uh, started out his career with a book deal that he got basically off an SCBWI connection. He went, he met someone, later he got a picture book deal with them, and he has now won the Caldecott Award. So, yeah, I feel like my thing with any of these kinds of organizations, this also goes for, like, deciding what cons to exhibit at and all that kind of thing. It really does come down to, like, Instead of thinking about it like, oh, no, am I missing out if I'm not doing this one thing? It's more like, well, are people who are doing the thing like you doing that thing? Is it working for them? Does it seem to be a good idea for you specifically? And don't worry too much about like whatever – what like the done thing is it's like well because what makes sense for you might not make sense for somebody yeah, else i mean and there's the... there is a membership fee to join mm-hmm. so and that's part of it like you, you know, know if that's not something you can afford maybe that's not for you um there's always ways around that there's scholarships you can always talk to the people who are planning the thing and say 
I would love to come to this conference. I can't because of, you know, financial hardship or like, I want to make sure it's worth my money. Like, can I, can I come to the drinks hour or just like show up at the drinks happy hour that's at the <laughs> the hotel bar or something like that and, you know, feel it out, get a sense of like, is this a good environment for me? And if you don't feel like you are, yeah. belong and are welcome there, then maybe it's not. I feel like that goes for basically any organization. Yes. Man, the next one I definitely have more opinions about. But. Okay. Uh, so our next question is, do you think web comics are a good way for young comics writers and artists to get noticed? I mean, here's the thing. I think it's much less of a big deal than it used to be because there are so many more of them. And it's more like it used to be where if you did a basically competent webcomic, people would read it because there just weren't that many of them out there. People and I there weren't that many of them out there that were worth reading. And so it was not that difficult to get a pretty decent following. It's like, is your webcomic basically competent? Do you update in a regular schedule? Are you making any attempt to get the word out? Then you're basically going to be fine. And I get the sense that's less true than it used to be. And now it's kind of just another venue for having to do a lot of legwork to get yourself noticed. And so yeah, it seems to I mean, work I very well for some people. And for other people, it ends up just feeling yeah. very discouraging. I think it's like SCBWI, right? You have to look at it. You have to say, do I want to be writing in this this format? Do I want to be updating on a regular basis? Do I want to be sharing on social media? Do I want to be part of this community? Do I want to be like networking within this to get my art noticed? Like, do I want to commit to that? And if you are thinking, no, that sounds terrible, maybe you should join SCBWI instead. <laughs> I mean, I, I think the main thing, I mean, having done, like the last time I did a webcomic was a few years ago. And I will say, Webcomics are great for very specific things. And I think this is still true. I was last time I was in this game was like in 2013. But I don't think things have changed that much since then. Um, it's, it's great, because it gives you a reason to be posting regularly on social media about stuff you're working on, you always have something to talk about. And if you're just starting to get into the community, it's nice to always have something interesting to talk about. And that sounds stupid. But like, I there's a big thing on anxiety about Twitter. Like, oh, I feel like I need to be using Twitter or Tumblr or Instagram or whatever. But what am I even going to post about? And having a regularly updating webcomic is very helpful for that. And you will get to know other people who are doing similar webcomics, especially if you're in any, there's any number of collectives or if you end up in kind of a circle of people and you read other people's webcomics. Like, it's a really great way to meet other people. And honestly, for me, the most important thing is it's a really great way to train yourself to be better at comics. It's a really great way to work on discipline. So I feel like it's less, maybe don't think of it in terms of like, is am a big I, is Am it, I 100% going to get a book deal out of yeah, this? Yeah, is some big publisher, am I going to be the next check, please? Like, am I going to get like, you know, thousands and thousands of readers and have a big fancy book deal out of this? And more like, when I pitch a comic to a publisher this will be one, I will be better at drawing comics than I was when I started. And two, I can point to this to be like, I've been regularly updating my webcomic three times a week for the last five years. And so when I say I can finish this book in X number of months, you can trust me to be able to do what I'm saying I can, because here's the evidence of my comics making discipline. And I do think that's helpful. Yeah. And, and obviously, Ngozi and Checkplays are outliers. Yeah. But 
Raina Telgemeier also started. It's Smile true. as a webcomic. Noelle yeah. Stevenson started. Nimona as a webcomic. GG2G started Cucumber Quest as a okay. webcomic. There's a lot of the stuff that is getting turned into a book. And I think there's much less of a stigma about that than there used to be. Yeah. And I think that you are you are more likely to have a webcomic that gets turned into a book than not publish anything and <laughs> like have a surprise book deal come to you. That's very true. It's very true. Like you're, you're much more likely to get noticed for making a webcomic than getting noticed, not making anything. anything. <laughs> okay. So our next question is, are degrees in oh. fields related to comics helpful for getting in the industry for the technical skills or for some other net benefit? <sighs> this so, is a um, rough one. Yeah. I mean, I, I Look, mean, I, I went really to film like, school. I mean, so I learned a lot. I have but a degree it's... in anthropology. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I'm a big fan of higher education, but not a big fan of tuition debt. So I would say that if that sort of monetary outlay is something that you're really concerned about, make a webcomic instead. <laughs> um, but that a lot of the people that I do know who do comics have some sort of degree in the arts or writing, you know, they, some of them have multiple degrees in the arts or writing. Some of them, you know, went to SVA, went to CCS, have a master's degree in, you know, fiction, have an MFA in, in fiction writing. This is not to say that you need any of those things, but we were talking when we we're talking about SCBDWI about like networking, knowing people, building a community. We're talking about that when we're talking about web comics. Going to college with some people is also a way to network and build community. I feel like the way to think about it is that it's not, it can help some things, but not so much that it's worth screwing up other parts of your life if it's going to screw up other parts of your life. Like if you have parents who are like, I'm going to pay for your college tuition and I'm happy to send you to any art college that you want to go to and you're going to graduate debt free. Dude, freaking go to art college. Like, why not? Like, if that's really what you want to do and you're passionate about it, absolutely. That's not true for everybody. I, I think that it's mostly what I tell people is like, if you're going to have to go into a lot of debt to go to college, it's worth considering. Can you see yourself maybe having any other job other than in the arts? Is there a degree that you can get that would help you get that other job that you would enjoy getting? consider if you're going to go into debt for college, getting a degree that you can use for something else, because while you don't need a degree in the arts to be a professional cartoonist, you do need a degree in engineering, maybe to be an engineer, if that makes sense. It's like, cause it, there's other jobs that I, so like the college experience is important. And like for a lot of people and I, and having a college diploma is important for a lot of things. And I'm not going to tell people, yeah, fuck college. I mean, there's an argument to be made for that, but I, I think that, Student debt is not messing around and just just think about it, like be thinking about it, because I know for every person I know who went to SVA and now they're friends with all their other SVA people and they make all make comics and it's great. I know tons of people who have a completely unrelated degree who maybe didn't even go to school in the city they currently live to who had to start completely from scratch. Like Carrie Peach doesn't have a comics degree. I don't have a comics. Like I didn't go to school for comics. You didn't go to school for comics. I know a ton of people who didn't go. I know a ton of cartoonists who didn't go to college at all. So it's kind of like, but like, you know, if you're thinking about college and you're like, I would like to work in a comics related field, like 
getting some sort of degree in design, for yeah. example, might be useful if you're like, I would like to learn how to use Photoshop or <laughs> like how to use a Cintiq. You know, there's plenty of things that you can do that are that would be later helpful to a comics degree yeah. that could also parlay themselves into a job in yeah. the meantime. Like but if you, you could, literally want to learn how to use Photoshop, your local community college might have a really good course on Photoshop that won't cost you $30,000 a year. Like it's really, it's more just like, there's no one right way to do this. And so like, make sure you're making the right decision for you personally and your own finances. And I just never want anybody to feel like if they don't go to SCAD or SVA or whatever, that they're throwing their careers under the bus and they're never going to be a professional and their life is over. Like it's, that's almost definitely not true. Like it can be useful to you. It might make sense for you, but if you don't do that, it's it's not like you're dooming yourself to obscurity and failure. On that note, <laughs> let's talk about, that was our last question about getting noticed. Um, Speaking of obscurity and failure, let's talk about pitches. Yeah. Okay. Um, we had a question that reads, I've read that the best way to pitch original graphic novels is just to draw the whole thing and then submit. Could you speak to the ways you've been pitched and some successful approaches? So this is probably a question for me. I'm gesturing at Gina. I mean, I can I can say what is true for my own books and books that other people have done, but you've received a lot of pitches recently, so. Yeah, I mean, and the, the answer to this question is that basically all the editors you talk to are going to have at least slightly different responses. Um, I really like working with authors kind of from the concept stage to developing their books into something. So not getting something and then just being like, this is what you're going to get. And also I have a real aversion to uh, liking 50% of something and then writing back to someone and saying, so how do you feel about redrawing 50% of your book? It's 300 pages long. Uh, Because I feel like that's probably not a great experience for people. Like, I would do that, to be clear, Um, because I I think it's probably worse to just get a no than like, would you consider redrawing 50% of your book? Particularly because the author might come back and be like, tell me what your problem is, because I might be able to work with you for a solution that involves only redrawing 20 pages of my book or whatever. Yeah. Um, So it's it's always worth asking. uh, But I do feel like if you have a graphic novel that you really want to do, why not pitch it on an outline sample art and a sample chapter? And then if you don't get any takers, start posting it as a webcomic, perhaps, or, you know, finish the whole thing if that's what you really want to do, and then send it around and be like, here's this concept, and I'm sure you'll be seeing it more in its realized state now that I've done the whole thing. Is this something that you would you would consider publishing? But I definitely feel like that first step of being like, here's a pitch means that you're making contacts with people and you're giving them the opportunity to say, this really won't work for me. Like I've gotten a few pitches that are erotica and I'm a kids and YA publisher, so I'm not really publishing erotica. And I was just able to let the person know like, I just can't do this. Like, this is really good, but I can't publish it. And so you're able to kind of take that feedback and adjust and be like, 
oh, if I if my dream is to be published by this publisher, I should drastically edit this book, or I need to shift my focus to some different publishers and a different audience for this. Now, I'm actually curious if you agree with me. And it seems like from what I've seen, most comics publishers would prefer to buy something on proposal. And prose publishers can sometimes be a little harder because they're one used to primarily dealing with finished manuscripts from new authors. And two, they're less, they don't, they're just not necessarily comics people. And it's harder for them to take especially a simple proposal that maybe doesn't have a ton of sample pages and be like, what is this going to feel like as a book? But I kind of know that was my feeling for it, but I definitely feel like most comics that I, most people I know who are selling comics to comics publishers these days are selling things on proposal with like maybe a sample chapter. It's definitely a feeling that I've gotten. That is also the feeling that I have gotten um, just because Comics publishers understand how tough it is to do edits yeah. of finished art. Not edits at all. Comics publishers still want edits. <laughs> um, but I do think that if you're selling your your book to a prose publisher like Tor or like, you know, Picador, which um, published a brief history of everyday objects, mm-hmm. that's maybe not the best example because I feel like it has a really <laughs> good proof of concept. Uh, or, but like, say you're publishing, you want to pitch your book to Norton. You're like, David Small's work is so fantastic. I want to work with that editor. Like, that editor might just be like, I've edited these two graphic novels by David Small. Like, I'm not exactly sure how to like conceptualize this book when you're giving me all these pieces and you're not giving me like a complete script or whatever. Um, and you know, the, I've met the editor over in Norton. She's great. So maybe she wouldn't say that, but <laughs> she's also edited two graphic novels. So maybe she would want to see more than that. Yeah. There, I feel like I'm more likely to, for instance, to be like, do you have a script for this book? At least even if yeah. that said though, I will say also, here's the thing. It's kind of this catch 22 thing. Cause like, I do think that most books get sold, as proposals, on the other hand, geez, man, having your first graphic, like selling a graphic novel and have that be the first time you've ever drawn a graphic novel, like that's a lot. Like if you've never drawn anything longer than 20 pages, like think, really be honest with yourself because just because you can sell that 200 page graphic novel, like I, not to get too real with you here, but like really look deep into your soul and be like, before I hotshot young cartoonist aggressively sell this proposal for my 200 page dream project. If you've never drawn anything longer than 20 pages, really think about like, do you want to sign yourself up for that? Because like, that's a real serious business commitment. And it is very hard. Like, and I, I love comics and I'm very happy with the work that I've done, but the particular experience of having to like muscle your way through that many pages over the course of like a year or two is pretty serious. And if you've never done anything like that, like maybe consider, even if you don't want to draw your whole book ahead of time, maybe consider doing a side project that's a little longer for yourself or maybe doing a longer sample than is necessarily being asked of you. But like, Give yourself a real good metric of like, because if nothing else, they're going to ask you about when you're going to be able to turn that book in. You want to be able to give them an answer that makes sense for you. You don't be like, oh, uh, six months. And then it turns out, no, it's going to take you a year and a half to draw that book. Um, So just, I guess, be smart about it. But uh, 
Yeah, because I've definitely seen some people have some very bad experiences with selling their first book on proposal. Not just cartoonists either, but prose authors. It can be really harrowing. Yeah. So our next question addresses <laughs> this as well. And it, it uh, specifically asks, like, why graphic novel manuscripts often sell on proposals, but traditional publishing, generally you get a prose manuscript. Uh, and... I mean, my insight into this is generally that when a traditional publisher gets a manuscript, they're treating it basically as a first draft, like something that would be the equivalent of you submitting thumbnails for a book. Um, You know, it's at a point where there's lots of editorial work to be done. There's like an easy editorial road. Um, With comics, obviously, that's not the same, right? You know, if you turn in your complete book, the person is not going to be like, oh, great. Why don't we write rewrite the entire book? Um, so the idea of I'm turning in something preliminary that is going to have a lot of editorial work is the same stage for both comics and prose. It's just that stage looks different for the two forms. I think also it's like, so I mean, that's a huge thing because like, for instance, you can be like, I just feel like, the main character here is really harsh. And instead of being a 500 pound gorilla, I really want the main character to be a monkey. And you can rewrite a book to turn a gorilla into a monkey in a week. You cannot redraw a graphic novel to turn a gorilla into a monkey in a week. And like that, like this is a silly example, but like it really does come down to like, yeah, exactly. Like the 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 time investment of making what would otherwise be pretty minor changes can be huge. But I, I mean, also I feel like the other thing is like, um, this is like received wisdom, and I don't know how if people actually you can tell me if people still talk about this way. There's the sense that like most people buy graphic novels as like a gut feeling, like they pick up the book and they flip through it and they basically decide pretty quickly, do I like this book or not? Whereas prose books are tricky. You don't generally it's much harder to get a measure of like a prose book and whether or not you have that gut feeling about whether or not you're going to like that whole book by flipping through it in quite the same way. And so like you sort of need to have more of it to figure out if you want to read the rest of it well so this actually leads into our next question which is how much harder is it for a writer to pitch with just a script versus pitching with an artist attached Callista Brill addressed this briefly and it sounds much harder which is because it is is. you know that that gut feeling that Allie was just talking about as a you look at something and you're like I love this and I think it's great you know it's beautiful I want it on my bookshelf you can get that when you open a proposal with art in it. You can get it when you open a, a graphic novel in the bookstore. And you can't really open it and get, get it in the same way when you open a Word doc. Yeah. Like what makes a script amazing is going to be y- – you can flip through it and be like, this is a clever line of dialogue. But like you're not going to get a sense of like, am I going to be moved by this story until you actually kind of sit down and read it. It's very hard to sell something on proposal pitching as just a writer if you're just starting out. I think if you're established as a writer, like if you, a person listening to this, are like an established YA author with like a really great track record and you're interested in collaborating with an artist on an original graphic novel, talk to your agent about it because I think that, you know, you if you're like, well, I'm, you know, New York Times bestselling YA author, you know, Apple Blossom, and I would like to get into graphic novels, you're going to have an easier time than like a person who just graduated from 
college like last week, obviously. Yeah. Um, but if this is not to say that I would advise any writer who is not a New York Times bestselling YA author who wants to do comics no. to team up with an author and be like, author, I will pay you, you know, page rate of X to draw my graphic novel. Because editors do have that Eureka moment when they open proposals and they could open your proposal and just say, oh, no, I don't like this because they don't like the artist that you yeah. decided to pull out of a hat to and work with. Especially comics publishers, I feel like, often have like a, a bunch of artists where they're like, I really like this artist, but they just haven't pitched me quite the right thing yet. Where if they talk to, you know, New York Times bestselling YA author who's just super... I'm, and now I feel like I'm talking about a specific book, but I'm actually not. would love to do a book with you. You can be like, oh, you're, you write all these books about sentient trees and I have this artist who just really loves drawing ants and I think that the two of you could work really well together etc etc but I mean I feel like probably the majority of the people listening to this podcast are not New York Times bestselling YA authors and so in which case like you know if you already have an agent talk to your agent about your pitch they'll have a better sense of the specific editors that you're thinking about working with and the specifics of the book that you're trying to pitch uh yeah, I mean, and, and it, there are also other things that, you know, if you don't have an agent, if you're like, I want to be a comics writer, I would like to be the next Kelly Sue DeConnick, I would like to be the next Neil Gaiman. Um, that's really great. Those are all really high aspirations. Uh, but, you know, obviously, they all got there somehow. So, you know, think about other things that you can do kind of as an, an entree into the field. You know, maybe what you want to do is comics journalism and go from being a journalist into uh, being a comics writer, which is actually, Neil Gaiman did not work in comics journalism per se, but that's actually what he did. Uh, maybe what you want to do is to partner with an artist on a webcomic or partner with an artist on some anthology work or start establishing credentials for yourself as a writer of prose stuff, you know, uh, sell some short stories on the science fiction market, do some contests for fiction writing. Maybe that's a case where you want to get an MFA or something like that. Just you have to think about how your career is going to work. And it's not a I was born and then I got a graphic novel contract. It's just, there's, there, there are going to be steps in between that. Yeah. Pay attention to opportunities and then take advantage of them. That's how it works for most of us. I got started in animation writing. Life is weird. Yes. So our next question is what kind of agreement should a writer and artist have when they're working and pitching together? Oh boy. So if, I'm, you know, I'm actually curious what, what, what you, if you have anything to say about this. Because I just went through a version of this actually recently. Uh, so I have some thoughts about this. Um, one is that if a writer and an artist are doing a book deal with a publisher who's going to give them a contract, um, I frequently find it very useful if you are not like married <laughs> to each other. Sometimes if even if you are married to each other. Um to have two separate contracts because sometimes something happens to that other person that you're collaborating, you know, they fall down a well, like they, <laughs> that plague of well falling. That's <laughs> that, that often <laughs> besieges cartoonists. Um, you know, they 
have a transformative life experience and decide to enter a monastery, any of those things. And if you have a joint contract, even if you have done 100% of your work, it can be tough to cancel that contract because the contract is with both of you and the other party is not going to deliver. And if you're like, I'm a writer who doesn't make art, uh, you have no way to deliver that other 100% of the the contract. Um, So that's a thing that I think. Um, But so other than that, from the from the publisher's end of things, I don't super have a lot to say. But I would say that if you are a person in a writer artist partnership who are doing a piece of work together, maybe you should consider getting some sort of collaboration agreement so that you both mutually understand what you're contributing to the book that you're working on and what sort of thing that you can do with the material that you're producing. So I was going to say, regardless of whether or not you're actually looking to work with a publisher, like in, I think this is true of basically any collaboration that's there's any possibility of doing anything serious with ever. It's extremely good idea to have some kind of an agreement worked out between the two of you that is separate from any publishing agreement, like contract you may or may not get. That's like, that outlines all kinds of things, like even stuff that you think might not come up, sort of like literally like, you know, if a publisher really likes the story, but doesn't like the art, are we going to still sign with that publisher? Like, you know, who, if, if, if somebody of a movie studio wants to option our mini comic that we sold at SPX last year, like, do we both have to say yes? Does only one person have to say yes? Who has control over this? I mean, this is, this sounds silly, but this is the thing, like, thinking about, like, who quote unquote owns this in what way? Who's responsible for what? Because a lot of the time, what happens is it's one person's, so one person is like, I have this really cool idea, and then they find another person to work with it. And you might be thinking, this is my idea, and I own it, and I have this friend who I'm going to hire to draw this book with me, but at the end of the day, it's my book. Whereas your friend might be thinking, my cool friend has this idea, and now together as equal partners, we're going to work on this book together, and it's going to be great. And neither one of those is necessarily a better or worse way to approach it. You just really want to make sure that you both think the same thing or thinking the same thing. And it's, you can either do this informally between the two of you. Like if you Google collaborators agreement, you'll come up with stuff. If you have an agent, even if you have the same agent, uh, I know agents will, like one of the things that my agent has done for other people is facilitate this exact type of thing. Uh, and he actually, I had a whole conversation with him about this and he's like, no, it's actually good to have it be separate from the publisher because the publisher just cares about things like copyright and who's going to get paid and who's responsible for things. When things are getting turned in. Exactly. But there's all kinds of issues that are outside the scope of what a publishing contract is going to cover. So it's worth definitely sit down and make sure you're on the same page. And even if all you're doing is both writing on a piece of paper, like a list of your responsibilities and basic shit and signing it and maybe taking a photo of it in case your dog eats it or something. Uh, I would highly recommend doing that because as much as it can feel like, but they're my friends slash wife slash maybe your dog wrote it. I don't know. Like it can feel like you're putting business into your personal relationship. But the whole point is that you, you want to have us an infrastructure to keep from having a giant fight later. Yes. Uh, basically. <laughs> Okay, so we have a few questions that are kind of um, slightly more micro-focused than this. And then the the first one of those is, 
When pitching for the first time, is a standalone story more likely to be picked up over a multi-book series? So, Allie, you have a two-book deal. Well, I mean, mine, mine was weird because it basically was a giant story that got broken into two parts because physically it was too big to be one book. <laughs> um, so I feel like if you're, I think the way to think about this is if your story is a big story, don't artificially try to make it seem shorter in a way that isn't that makes your story less good like if you if you're just a person who wrote a 600 page story then it's just a 600 page story like and that's fine uh pitch it as a trilogy and do what you got to do i don't know man i feel like a lot of there's this whole trend of like pitch the one book that could be standalone or could be turned into a serious thing which i just find exhausting that it seems to be the way people do things yeah i mean i think there's a few things here right one of them is that i personally really like books that can stand alone right so i am not a huge fan of the this book ended right in the middle and now i don't know how the plot that the people have brought up is resolved or what happens to any of the characters. And incidentally, this is why my book is coming out in February and then book two is coming out in September was because my editor agrees with you and she's like, I want people to be able to read the second part of this book basically as soon as possible. Uh, so, this exact reason, you yeah. know, when you're thinking about your book, if, if it's a trilogy or if it's a series, I think that having at least a distinct plot together for the first book that makes it end on a good note is good. But I do find that people who pitch one book hoping that it's going to be a series or a trilogy sometimes have a lot of problems because <laughs> graphic novels take a while to make. Mm -hmm. um, if your book is done and your publisher is not immediately like, this is a heartbreaking work of staggering genius, we must sign up the next three parts of this immediately... And they're like, well, let's see how sales do. Mm -hmm. So you turn in your book. It goes through design. It goes through production. It comes out. It's a year later. They look at six months of sales. It's a year and a half later. And they're like, oh, this book's doing really well. This is great. Would you like to do another two books in this trilogy? And you're like, yeah, it's going to take me two years. You sign that up you're like okay your production half a year of sales tracking two years of additional creative work then you got another year of uh of production again yeah. at which point your second book is coming out four and a half years after yeah like i feel like for the most part I'm but, really glad you went into the details I mean, of that because it's like there's very specific circumstances where it makes sense to. Pick yeah. And also like I do kids books. Yeah. So kids are specific ages. If your book is a book for eight year olds, all of your the kids who read that book are going to be 13. And maybe it's not a book for them anymore. Maybe they're in high school now and they're like, I don't care about these characters that are still in middle school. Yeah. So if your ideal form of the book is a trilogy or a series, then I think it is best to say that at the outset. And I know plenty of people who've gotten an initial book deal and 
it's a two book deal or it's a three book deal. You know, publishers are just like, I really like this art. I want to have one book every year and a half for this author for the first two years and we'll see how that goes. Um, So I feel like if you're thinking of your project and you're thinking about it as a series, say that at the outset. Um, Even if you're like, this is a great standalone graphic novel, I see potential for a series, this could be one book, or it could be three books or five books. Um, Then the publisher can come back and be like, oh, if it's going to be three books, I have to buy them right now. Yeah. Or I think this one book is a perfect heartbreaking work of staggering genius in and of itself. And that's what I want in this universe. And then you can choose at that point and say, Actually, I want to tell a story that's going to be three books long here. So this is maybe not the best publisher and, for me. And it's worth mentioning that even though my book was only two books, I had the first one was basically finished when I sold that two book series. And, and this would have been a very different experience if I was selling this book on proposal. Okay, so our next question is, if you're sending pitches, do you send them directly to the editor's email on the publisher's website? I keep hearing about it, but isn't it super rude if they're not explicitly taking open submissions oh god i hate this it's so the etiquette of this is so messy it is very messy so here's what i would say about this um if you are sending pitches and there is a way that the publisher has organized to send pitches you know if they have a form on their website that's like this is the form that you send submissions to Include then these you materials here's a google form or whatever then you yeah. follow those instructions uh, if the publisher has a number of editors whose emails are public either because they have them up on their Twitter or their personal website or something. Uh, Nothing where you are hacking into some sort of database (laughs) to find them. Um, Comics espionage. You know, you're like, I love this editor's books. They're so great. Their email's up on their Twitter page. Um, Then that person's email is up on their Twitter page because they would like to get an email from you that's like, I really like the graphic novels you publish and I think you're amazing. I'm a graphic novelist myself and I just wanted to show you my work. Yeah. I mean, the problem is it's like, there's such a, there's such a huge informal network of pitching people and it changes from editor to editor. So it's like, ideally people will be very clear with you, but I know some editors who were like, Oh yeah, no, I mean, we don't officially take unsolicited submissions, but people email me stuff all the time. And every once in a while, I'll go for something. And there's other e- editors who are like, we don't take unsolicited submissions, and I will delete all unsolicited submissions. But there's very my- few of them compared to the ones who are like, oh, yeah, something amazing shows yeah. up, and I will be excited about it. I will say that like, usually the best thing to do if there's not a very clear submission process, and for whatever reason, you're deciding you want to submit directly to an editor instead of going through getting an agent first. Usually the way you want to do that is if you've talked to the editor at a convention or some other kind of professional context or even not like even like you had a great conversation at a party about the book that you're working on. And she was like, Oh, yeah, send me your pitch. Like that's kind of the best circumstance to be sending one and the less 
context they have for you, the less likely it is that that's going to go anywhere. And that generally speaking, unless an editor has had a conversation with you that included some explicit, you should email me, you might be better served trying to find an agent to represent you because it will probably take less time and be more likely to result in the res- yeah. the thing. That you I want. mean, the other alternative here is just like doing all your research, mm-hmm. by which I mean all of the possible research that you can possibly find out about this person and writing them an email that's like, I want to work with you. I know you edited these five books. I love this book. It made me want to do comics. I'm so inspired. I think this is great. This would be a dream, et cetera, et cetera. There's no one who, there's no one who doesn't like getting an email that's like, I love your work and it really has personal significance to me. But then you have to really do your research so that you're like, (laughs) <laughs> I know who you are and also what work you've published. And it actually does have to have personal significance to you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, there's no reason not to. Worst thing that happens is they don't get back to you. But then you're no worse off than you were before. Yes. Uh, okay, so our next question is, what information should an email to a publisher contain? So this gives me uh, the opportunity to talk about one of my new pet peeves, which was also one of Calista's pet peeves when we talked to her, which is emails <laughs> that I get that are like, I have a pitch I could send you. Would you like to see the pitch? I could send it to you. If you email me back to tell me that you would like to see it. And I'm just like, just send me the pitch. Don't send me an email to tell me that you could send me the p- a pitch if I email you back to ask you to send me a pitch. Just send me the pitch in the first place. It feels like some kind of way to manufacture a read receipt almost, you know? Like, I want you to acknowledge that you got this email before I send you this other email. It's very weird. Uh, So your email should contain the pitch. That is an important thing. Um, If you are sending art, your email should contain the art, but it should possibly contain it as a Google Doc link or a Dropbox link or a file sharing sort of link, rather than trying to append giant files to an email you're sending to a corporate server. Uh, And as we said in the last question, it's always good to have some sort of personal anecdote or reason why you are specifically emailing this pitch to this specific editor uh like an actual letter that's like hello allison i would like you to read this pitch this is a terrible letter by the way (laughs) (laughs) hello allison i would like you to read this pitch it's because I know of your interest in... I'm dying to know what you're going to say here. Teacup seahorses. <laughs> <laughs> because I've been stalking you on Twitter, and your Twitter feed is entirely teacup seahorses. I've become entranced by them myself. And I have this entire graphic novel about teacup seahorses solving mysteries that was inspired by these this new species of seahorses that I have been introduced to by you. But not in a creepy way, so it's fine. Yes. Um, so just anything where you're like, this specifically is a thing that you would like specific person who I am explicitly writing to. Also, this seems obvious, but like, I've been surprised by what isn't obvious to people. Make sure it is clear in your email why you are emailing them. Like, don't 
they'll be coy here, be like, I'm emailing to you because I would like to pitch to you this graphic novel that I'm hoping that you will publish. Like, maybe say it a little bit more graceful than that, but like, make it clear why you're emailing them. I just wanted to connect is maybe not a good thing if you're like attaching your book that you want them to publish. Also, like, explain the materials you've attached. Be like, I've attached to you, you know, a pitch proposal and some sample pages and et cetera, et cetera. And also, you know, include information that feels relevant. Like, have you had other books published? Do you have an 800 page award winning web comic? Is your comic about teacup seahorses and you have a PhD in teacup seahorses? Like maybe mention that like it's kind of classic sort of, you want to sort of not only, you want to provide all the relevant information and the information that makes this person think, oh, I should pay extra close attention to this email because this person sure does seem to be an expert in horses. <laughs> oh, these are real thing. I know no, I, I just was... invented them for the purpose oh, of this God, conversation. I'm disappointed. I know, but I don't know. Seahorses the size of teacups might be. I mean, those would be kind of huge, though, yes, right? Yes, anyway. that's why they're funny. Anyway, please go on. Okay, so our next question I feel like is a good case study of what we would do in this specific instance. So um, someone tweeted us to say, how would you format a pitch for a humor adventure graphic novel for seven to nine-year-olds with six parts that were each 65 pages long? Um, So the first thing I would do if I was a writer who is like, hello, I'm writing books for seven to nine-year-olds, is I would go to the bookstore, perhaps to Barnes & Noble, who has opened a new kids' comic section, perhaps to an indie bookstore, perhaps to Amazon, and look, or to the library. Libraries are also amazing. Um, And look at what graphic novels for seven to nine-year-olds are being published. Um, Do they have a kind of standard length? Do they have a similar set of themes? Do they have a standard trim size? Do Are there other things that they have in common? And so following that, I would figure out how my graphic novel fits in with that. Is my graphic novel just like these books? Or is it extremely different? If it's extremely different, do I want it to be extremely different? Am I like, this is a heartbreaking work of staggering genius, you like an individual, yeah. you know, crystalline gem of excellence <laughs> in and of itself? Or should I be looking at this and saying, if kids' comics for nine year olds are generally 250 pages long, maybe what I should be doing is putting four parts of this together into one book. Um, so, knowledge of the market is really good. And you're going to want to speak to that specifically when you're emailing to say, if you like X book or you published X book, and I think this book is a, a lot like that. Or if you go the, the route of saying this book is a unique and individual object, what you want to do is express that specifically and say, this is unlike anything else on the market. Be really sure that it is actually unlike everything else on the market. But I think it will succeed because it has the following qualities. Yeah, and I mean, I'm I'm actually, so for the specifics of this particular book that this person is talking about, they were also asking if they should 
pitch it as six chapters or six books or whatever. And I'm kind of like, so this is 390 pages, which is a weird length for a, like, I feel like it's too long for a book for seven to nine year olds. Yeah. I mean, so the problem is that most seven to nine year old graphic novels are Dave Pilkey's Dog Man. That yeah, is like, so, uh, which is like a chapter book series, which is not this. Yeah. So, I mean, I think just like some research would want to go into this to be like, am I sure about this age category? Do I want to age it down a little? Yeah. So it's like Narwhal and Jelly age, or would I want to age it up a little? So it's middle grade. If it's seven to nine, like what is really going to make it kind of stick in that category? Yeah. Because there's a lot of pros that's seven to nine. That's really good. It's just a matter of like yeah. figuring out where the book is in the market and does it need to stick there or do you want it to be doing something slightly different, in which case you adjust accordingly. Also, separate from this specific thing, part of this person was also asking if, for instance, they should just be vague and just write the whole thing as six parts. And putting aside the specifics of this thing, I will say if you have a big, ambitious book series project, even if it's for younger readers, so like the books aren't necessarily super long, I don't know if it's such a great idea to script out that whole series ahead of time, because I mean, the likelihood that hmm, editorial changes that can kind of be minor in the beginning sort of snowball. So like, if your editor sits down with you, your potential new exciting editor and is like, so I really like the first book, the script that you gave me for the first book, but I want to kind of change these things. Like those, the ripple effects of a, a series of even minor changes in early parts of the series would necessitate pretty serious rewriting of later parts. And maybe that's not the best use of your time would be to write an entire six book series out all at once, because it's very likely that there's going to be foundational changes in the first book that would necessitate, if not completely rewriting, making pretty serious changes to later ones. And maybe don't put all your eggs in that basket. Yeah, but I would say that keeping it vague tends not to be a good idea. No. Because it can, even if it, this is something well, that you, you, you know what you're, you're talking about. Yeah. And you, this person who has written this question is clearly a person who has been thinking about this, yeah. who has a whole list, who knows what age categories are. But if you're just like, this is going to be published in some sort of way. Could be one big book, could be a series of books. Definitely decide that before you pitch it. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So our next question is that the hashtag pitmat event is happening this Thursday. Uh, Which so it's going to be after this episode goes up. Sorry, <laughs> sorry, listeners. <laughs> but the, these these th these hashtags come up a lot, though. Yeah. Do you know of any graphic novels that have been acquired this way? If so, what makes for a successful eye-catching Twitter pitch? My answer is no. I don't know of any graphic novels that have been acquired this way, and I have talked to some editors of graphic novels who've been asked to participate in these events and who've followed people and their response has been kind of like SCBWI where the amount of graphic novels that get submitted are not a significant faction so that people are just not able to like they're like I had to read these you know, 800 tweets, and there was one person who was doing a graphic novel, and so it wasn't worth it for me. I don't know, maybe we should organize a graphic novel one in our copious spare time, of well, course. Of course. I will say, I will say, positively, though, 
I do know a lot of agents who use those kinds of hashtags to look for authors to reach out to. And a lot of agents who now are kind of like mainstream agents who do middle grade chapter books, YA, science fiction, fantasy, literary fiction, who are wanting to include two or three graphic novels in their stable of clients that they represent also. So participating in, in, in hashtags, like I've heard people using all various visibility hashtags and like pitch, you know, pit and all that. Yeah. Like that's, they're definitely not a waste of time, but be very careful. Like it's worth putting some time into putting your tweet together to be eye catching and, if you're an effective. artist, definitely include your art. Yeah, and 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 also really be very mindful of like think of it as like a miniature portfolio in both the sense of like what kind of work are you trying to get? Don't just pick the four pieces of art that you're the proudest of. Pick the four pieces of art that when somebody looks at it, they'll think, "I want to hire this person for X," and X is the thing you actually want to get hired for because I think that sometimes people can get caught up in how to make the best looking tweet and they aren't thinking about like what am I actually trying to accomplish with this? Like, if you want to draw adorable middle grade books about teddy bears, maybe don't have it all be like bloody dragon pictures, even if they're gorgeous bloody dragon pictures, unless you want to be hired to draw bloody dragons. Which, I mean, why wouldn't you? But I'm just saying. Yeah. Maybe that's not where you're at in your career anymore. Oh, wait, wait, wait. I have one other thing to say about the pitch thing. Oh, my God, please. I'm begging you. It doesn't have to be in your tweet. Put your contact information on your Twitter profile, if at all possible. And if not on your Twitter profile, if you just, for whatever reason, do not want to have your email address there, have it be like on the front page of whatever website is the link that you're including. I cannot overstate how important this is. People do not want to solicit you through DMs. They don't want to like, just, they don't want to at you publicly. Just make it so that people can email you. Most professional business is conducted by email. You have to have an email address and you have to post it someplace publicly if you want to get work. I don't like having to message people on Tumblr and ask them for their content information. It stresses me out. Don't it's make me worse. do this. So um, we also have a question about comparing deals and one about deal types. This is probably a question that Allie and I are going to fudge a little over <laughs> because... There are a lot of types of books deal, book deals. Um, neither of us are contracts experts. We'll see if we can acquire uh, another contract expert to explain contracts again. Uh, but we didn't. We didn't actually talk about deal types last time. But there's a number of different ways that you could get a book deal from a publisher. Um, it could be a work for hire deal, uh, where the publisher is like, "You are working on this property. You don't own this property." Um, Here's some money. That will explicitly be spelled out in the contract. Um, You could get an advance royalty deal where um, you are like, okay, you know, I'm going to get this money up front and it will be paid because I'm getting a percentage of every book that sells. Um, You could get a profit split deal, which those are sometimes 50-50. There's sometimes other percentages, which can include advances. They can include everything on the back end, where what happens is that the publisher looks at all the costs that are involved in the book, and you can negotiate this in the contract, which costs are included. And you get some percentage of the profits after those costs have all been deducted, and the publisher gets the other percent. Um, You could sign an IP deal where you are coming up with an idea and you are selling it to the publisher 
for them to own. And in that case, you can get a royalty, you cannot get a royalty. Uh, but the idea is not yours anymore. Um, those are the main kinds of deal uh, yeah, that I know about. And they all have good parts and they all have bad parts, right? Everything else is kind of a variation of one of those things. Um, you know, some of them can work out. They, they can all work out very well or poorly for you. Yeah. Um, some people do a lot of work for hire and really like it. Some people do a whole lot of IP work where they just come up with ideas and then sell the ideas to people all the time. And they really like that. Um, some people really like having, getting in advance and then uh, being able to earn back royalties once the book has earned out, if the book earns out. Um, some people really like the idea of having a profit split where they get a specific percentage of all the books and kind of feel invested in the creative process. Yeah. So it's less a this is the book deal that is the one true book kind of book deal and more like what is right for you and your your specific work. God, context is so important because I've known people who do work for higher jobs where they're like, they treated me so well and I was so happy and the work was really satisfying and it paid well and it was great. And people who have had work for hire who are like, I'm never going to work do work for hire again. It was soul sucking and terrible. And I've had basically those exact same conversations about like flashy creator owned books where you're like, I never want to work with this publisher again. They treated me like garbage and it was awful. Or I, I, I just like want... royalty and it was amazing. Like yeah. it's not... I think that people, especially on Twitter, where everything gets kind of flattened and condensed in a way that isn't helpful sometimes, you can see people shouting, like, never do work for hire, or like, creator-owned is always amazing, or whatever. But I mean, it really does have to do with the specifics, not only of the deal, but of the particular publisher that you're working with, the particular editor that you're working with. And like, also, like, what you need right yeah. now. You know, if you're like... Like, your temperament I, is really important, actually. Yeah, but also if you're like, I need to pay back my college loans and I have a, a payment that's due, or, like, I need to pay rent yeah. and this is the lowest I can get at the city that I live in that I feel comfortable paying, you just have to think about all those things when you're thinking about what kind of book deal that you're yeah. so taking. In my experience, most people who make most of their income off of comics are doing a mix of those things because some of them pay aren't as great for like long-term career investment necessarily, but pay decently and quickly. And some of them are much more likely to help you build like kind of the foundation of your big career you want to have, but you might have to wait two years to get that check. And so most people are kind of doing a mix of both so they can pay the rent, but also be like become the, the beautiful, serene, and uh, profound creator of genius that they deserve to be. Yes. So we also have a question about negotiations, um, which I feel like our last two answers are just like everything is subjective. And <laughs> negotiations work like that, too. You know, when you get an offer from a publisher, I would say I don't know anyone who is at a publisher who if someone they wanted to work with that they, you know, got far enough along that they're like, here's an offer. If the person wrote back and was like, I have some questions, would it be possible to change the following things? Um, I don't, I don't think that is unreasonable. You, you might get a no, you know, the publisher might write back and say, unfortunately we can't change that. 
But no, if, if they said you ask questions, we're never going to work with you again, that is throwing out the baby with the bathwater. That is an unreasonable response, which probably lets you know that you don't want to work with them again. So I think there's a lot of publishers who, you know, if you email or you call at a prearranged time that you have agreed to talk with the person who sent you this deal um, and not just call out of the blue um, and say, I have some questions. There are some things that I would really like. Is it possible to change them? Sometimes people are going to be like, I'm sorry, the hundredth anniversary of us landing on Mars (laughs) is in two years. (laughs) It's, this is obviously not true, everyone, in case you're... Um, in case in this you're, SF tale of publishing. Yes. We need the Mars book to come out in two years when the 100th anniversary is, and if you can't make that date, we can't publish this book with you. Uh, but then you know. Then you're like, okay, there's a reason they're asking for this. I have to be confident that I can make this date. Um, but they might say oh no, like this book is about teacup seahorses. There's no relevant anniversary with them. We were eyeballing a date and we thought nine months was good, but if you need 12 months, that's fine. And also it's worth saying that like, if for instance, they really want this Mars anniversary book and you're like, there's no way I can do this book in two years, you can ask them, hey, I can make this to your deadline, but I would need you to hire a letterer for me, or I would need you to, like, I would need a big enough advance that I could freelance out some of this work. The worst thing they can say is no, and they might be like, if you can't do that book on a two-year deadline, but you can do it if you have extra help, you know what? It's worth asking, hey, I really want to be able to meet this aggressive deadline for this 600-page Mars book, but um, I won't be able to do it on my own. I would need to be able to freelance an inker or whatever to work with me. Is that something we can talk about? Like that is a thing that you can ask and they can say, no, we only want your hands to touch this book. The deal is off, but then maybe you don't really want to work with it. That wasn't going to happen anyway. Like it's fine. Also, man, here's the thing. Cause this question is assuming of course that you're negotiating this. You don't have an agent doing this for you. I deeply on a soul level understand the desire to not look foolish or to ask dumb questions like i cannot overemphasize how much i super super understand that but the thing is if you're a cartoonist who's representing yourself and you're negotiating a contract the editor or whoever's expectations of you are not that high with regards to your intimate knowledge of the publishing industry or contract law exactly so just Ask. They're not going to be like, this fool, this moron, how can we work with them if they don't understand this already? Like, that's not going to happen. Excellent voice, Sally. Thumbs up. Well, I, I, you know, I imagine I have like a monocle on when I'm saying this, but it's it's like, really, like, I, I come, it's very easy to get up the ass of this kind of anxiety, but take a step back and be like, I, it's better for you to ask what might feel like a stupid question. I guarantee you, yours is not the most stupid question that they've had to answer about a contract, even if it is stupid. And it probably isn't stupid. They don't expect you to be a big, sophisticated, big-time negotiator. They expect you to be a cartoonist who may or may not even know what an advance is. So just 
don't worry about it too much. If you're a person who has listened to all the previous episodes of this podcast by the time you're listening to this episode, I guarantee you, you actually probably know more about publishing than the average creator that they're working with. You're fine. It's fine. Yeah. I mean, and I would also say you definitely want to ask those questions and ask for the things that you want and come to some sort of peace with understanding what you're signing and also under like accepting what you are and you aren't getting because how annoyed are you going to be a year down the road when you're like, Oh, I didn't ask about that. And it turns out that's actually something that I really need. And I just didn't realize because I didn't understand what it was referring to. Yeah. You know, um, one of the authors that I'm working with who doesn't have an agent she and I got on the phone this morning and we're like, okay, we're going to finalize this deal. And we just went through all of the things. And I was like, this is how the subright splits work because I want to make sure that the authors that I am working with are not going to sit up in a year and be like, I thought this was happening for my book. And I'm like, well, you signed this piece of paper that says I have all these rights and now I can't really do anything, but, enforce them like I guess we could renegotiate another contract but Jeez. you know so yeah ask please ask if there's stuff that you're really concerned about definitely ask yeah okay agents we have many um fewer questions about agents than we do about pitches so Which I was surprised by actually yes because they're so important yeah so we have a few questions which are basically the same, right? Which is, um, how do you know when a literary agent is a good one? What do you look for? So, I mean, one of the things that I would say is that you look for a similar thing that you do when you're looking for a publisher. Um, do they have other authors that they work with whose work that you like and you think has been published well? Um, if you can find those authors on the internet. Do they seem happy with their agent? Do they thank them in the book? Do they talk about how great their agent is on panels? Do they talk about how great their agent is on the internet? Do, uh, do they respond to you when you email them to say, hey, I know this is kind of an imposition, but I've been talking to X, who I think is your agent, about signing up with them. I just want to check and see if you had a good experience and sometimes they don't respond to you, but sometimes they'll respond and say, yeah, this agent is great. And I really like them. So every once in a while, people are basically like, how do I know if an agent is like decent and going to sell my book and do it properly? And if you're worried, one really good thing to do is there are public resources available where people report, say people announce sales. Like, so you don't, necessarily even if an agent is a new agent and ha maybe the books they sold haven't come out yet you can't go look in a bookstore there's a bunch of websites available where you can basically go and be like what kinds of books has this agent already sold what kind of authors are they already working with like this is publicly some of it sometimes if it's behind a paywall but i bet you know a friend who has access to that stuff and it's worth asking friends about a query tracker is one of those and that's just a website where people who are submitting books to different agents post I submitted a book to this agent, they got back to me. Yep. I submitted a book to this agent, they told me they don't do nonfiction. 
I submitted a book to this agent. I didn't hear from them for three months. Then I checked in. I didn't hear from them for three months. Then I checked in. Then I didn't hear from them for three months. Um, You know, and there's all, it's a crowdsourced website. All these different people just track what responses they get for these people. Um, And that is very useful. Googling people is also a good thing. Mm -hmm. You know, you just, you want to do your research. You know, and if you, if your close friend is like, you had Jen Lennon on your, your podcast. I listened to her graphic novel TK episode. My close friend is her client and loves her. You will be fine. Mm-hmm. Um, if you, you know, have a two line email exchange with someone who's like, Brenda Baker, who was also on graphic novel TK earlier is really great. I think she's awesome go for it. You'll be fine. It is, it is less, um, those kinds of people that you should be concerned about than sometimes people who don't represent a lot of graphic novelists who may not necessarily know what needs to go in a graphic novel contract. Um, but that said, there's a lot of people who have graphic novels as a small part of their portfolio who are amazing. Yeah. And if you, for instance, are really experienced in graphic novels and know all the right questions to ask and are like best friends with Katie Lane and have four hour conversations about graphic novel contracts every weekend, maybe being a starter graphic novelist for an agent isn't the worst idea. But if you, for instance, are, I just got out of college and I'm selling my first book and I don't know anything about publishing, maybe you want to work with somebody who has a lot of experience doing the specific thing that you're doing. Yeah. And on the very, very, very rare occasion, there is an agent who is like, I have started this agency and I'm out to defraud people. It's great. Like that is my plan as an agent. Um, those people are very few or far and far between. Yeah, we want to almost stress this almost never happens. Yes. Um, Allie and I were talking about this a little bit earlier, and uh, she made the excellent and thought analogy that um, not getting an agent because you're worried that your, a- your agent is going to be fraudulent after like Googling them, talking to people, looking up their online presence, etc. It is the equivalent of not ever dating anyone because you're worried that you're accidentally going to marry a serial killer. It's not technically impossible, but it's not a reason to not get married or get an or agent. Or go on a date even. Yeah. yeah. So your agent will also probably not be a serial killer, just FYI. Yeah. Um I feel like also and this is putting aside even that the advice that I give a lot of people when it comes to finding agents is that it is a little bit like dating. And I don't think this is true of everything. I think you can have a really good relationship with an editor who you are is fine, but maybe you don't like you can work well with an editor who you don't necessarily get along with super well and have it be fine. But I feel like for most people, you just want to have a good feeling about your agent and basically trust them. And so if you, you should make sure you have a phone call with them and talk to them and ask them your questions. And if you have a bad feeling about them, don't work with them. That is a very good reason to not work with an agent because you're going to have a very close relation. They're going to be handling your book and you have to put a lot of trust in them. And for whatever reason, you're just like, I don't like the vibe this person is giving. Doesn't have to mean they're not a good agent. I don't, I don't even mean like, I think this agent is a serial killer. I just mean like, I don't really like the vibe. That is a perfectly good reason to not work with an agent. And you should never work with anybody you're not comfortable with. That is the only reason you need to give. Don't talk yourself out of like, 
oh, but they're so great and they represent this other person that I really liked. Like, you know what? Sometimes, you know, you're, somebody can be best friends with your friend. You don't get along with them. It just works out that way sometimes. I mean, I think that another thing that I personally think is important in an agent, which other people disagree about this one, is yes, no, that they get your book. That yes. they that you're saying, you know, I have this teacup seahorses pitch and they're not saying like why aren't you writing political autobiographical commentary and you're like you don't understand I wanna write cute yeah. animal chapter book graphic novels. If they can't kind of like enter into your vision. Um, and not just for that book, but like your career. If they're like, I see this whole career ahead of you where you're doing nothing but racehorse dramas. And you're like, but I don't want to be doing that. Like, again, it doesn't mean they're a bad agent. It just means maybe they're not a good fit for you. Yeah. If they're like, I can get you a lot of work adapting the classics into graphic novels, wouldn't that be great? And you're like, no, I want to be doing chapter book, animal, cuddly graphic <laughs> novels, um, then you are not kind of seeing at the at the same level. Even if they're like, I'm sure I can sell this, but I don't know what to do with it because they're not going to be able to give you the support that you need when they kind of go through the rest of the process, right? When they're not just the like, I've gotten you some money, but when they're like, how should we be promoting your book? How should this be that you know, the book that's a step to your next book. Um, you know, you want the person to be excited about the project you're pitching and seeing it as a good thing for you. Or perhaps, you know, saying like, this is actually not going to work for the market at all. And it, I'm happy to work with you. But I think this is not a direction that we should pursue right now. And you being happy to try something else for a little bit, because sometimes that's the case, you know, sometimes, like, Something came out and it bombed and publishers are like, no vampires anymore. Vampires are just terrible. Um, that is not an accurate statement about the market, but it was an accurate statement, you know, a few years post Twilight. Um, and, you know, so sometimes there'll be that thing and you'll be like, okay, so I have this vampire dream, but it sounds like maybe I'll draw some other paranormal creatures for a few years and then work back into Wait vampires. For this vampire hurricane to pass. I mean, and the other thing also is that like, I mean, agents wear a lot of hats, but one of them is like, you know, a salesperson for your book and your career. And you want, it's much better for that to be coming from a genuine place. Like they'll be better at doing it. Like I cried when I read the letter that my agent wrote that he was sending out, uh, when he was pitching my book around, like his basically like you write your just like you query your agents. Agents are kind of almost writing a sort of query type letter that they're then sending to editors to be like, here's why I think this book is great. And my agent is uh, Eddie Schneider is a great guy. And he showed me the letter he was sending to people. And I literally cried at my desk because it was the first time that somebody who wasn't a friend of mine or like my mom had said these kinds of things about my book. And I feel like authors deserve to have that experience of feeling like they have somebody in their corner who understands what's exciting about their project and feels like they genuinely want for that project to get read by people and get picked up by a publisher. Like that's, it sounds squidgy, but like it's actually important, you know, like it, it people are in publishing because they care about books. So anyway, not to get, you know, 
emotional about uh, whatever we're constantly emotional about comics it's fine <laughs> um so that is i think it for our conversation about agents uh maybe we'll talk about them some more in the future sometime yeah we're gonna have to have like an agent follow-up at some yeah. point. in the category of miscellaneous other publishing stuff uh, okay so we have a question about timelines so once you once you pitch i'm rephrasing this question a little because it covers a few things that we talked about already but uh, once you pitch a book and you get a contract um how you have a chapter of the art, you have five sample pages, something like that. There's 200 other pages that you need to draw. Um, how aggressive of a deadline does the publisher set for oh, the art Jesus. to be done? It super depends. Like, is your book promoting a movie that's coming out in six months? Or about the anniversary of the Mars landing? Yeah, or is your book like your heartfelt work of staggering genius that's like your personal memoir or whatever, and while the world is going to be shook by it when it does arrive... It's not particularly timely. Uh, yeah, it's so also the, seven pages long. Yeah, the answer is that this is always one of those things that you can push back against. Um, if it is not the anniversary of the Mars landing, it also is usually something where if you are going along and you're like, "I need another month," "I need another three months," that tends to be fine. Um, sometimes it is the anniversary of the Mars landing. Also communicate about these things with the publisher because they will tell you whether or not it is fine. And the earlier is better. And I cannot overstate. And again, this also falls into the category of like, I know it can be, it can feel humiliating and embarrassing, but it's really, really important. Really sit down and look into your own soul and be honest with yourself about how fast you can actually draw this book like, do the math, because ideally, you, aspiring graphic novelist, will have been drawing comics for a while. I highly recommend to have at least, before you start seriously pitching a graphic novel, to have at least one medium length, and by which I mean longer than 30 pages, and ideally more like 50, comic project where you are tracking, you're working on it seriously in a focused way, and you are tracking accurately how much you're actually getting done on a daily basis, which sounds like homework, and it is homework. It is a gift that you're constructing for your future self, because then you can look at this, and you can do some math, and if somebody tells you how long do you need to draw this 250-page graphic novel, you will look at your daily average, you will subtract one page from that daily average, you will multiply it, do the division and the multiplication to figure out how long it will take you, you will then add at least two months to whatever number you come up with. You'll add in weekends. Yes. Because if you're doing a 200-page graphic novel, you are probably not going to do yeah, one average, page a day for gonna, 200 pages straight. Yeah, you're going to do math for five days a week, and you're going to take out holiday major holidays that you celebrate, give yourself some time for travel, and then after you've done all the subtractions, you're going to add two months to it. And that's the number that you're going to give to them. I'm, and the longer your book is, the more I'm stressed to you. You definitely want to assume you want to assume that you're going to get mono and not be able to work for a month, or that your aunt is going to get sick and you're going to have to fly to Iowa and take care of her. Like shit happens, and it is so much better to give yourself. I know that we're all very impatient. Like you want your book to get done, your publisher wants your good book to get done, but honesty up front. They would so much rather have you turn your book in two months early than email them and tell them that it's going to be two months late. 
like everybody would prefer for you to have overestimated by a little bit how much your graphic novel is going to be. Nobody's going to be mad that you. Yeah, that said, I mean, there's a lot of publishers who do want stuff as soon as possible. Yes. You know, who are like, I really need a book because I have a hole in my list in spring 2020. It needs to be done six months from now. So publishers can take the 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 dates that you've negotiated pretty seriously. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, but it's like, it can be very tempting when you're in the hole of this to be like, this publisher is so excited and they really want my book to come out soon and they're asking me for this really aggressive deadline and maybe I can make it. But like, if you don't actually think you can make it, don't tell them you can make it. Yeah. Or tell them, you know, if I don't fall down a well, Mm -hmm. working flat out, I can make this. And I want to stress to you that's like in the best possible circumstances, I may be three months late. Yeah. Is that okay? Also, you need to be paying me a big enough advance that I can afford to not be taking on any extra work in this interim because I need to be working flat out. But I feel like most books don't have that aggressive a, like most people are not signing up a book where the publisher is like seeing dollar signs and they're can't wait for it to come out on the market. But I don't know, maybe I'm, I guess it depends entirely. And it depends on the publisher too. Yeah. So our next question is about taxes. Our favorite (laughs) thing that we both know so much about. Oh my God. I have an accountant. I deliberately don't know very much about this. If you get an advance, does the publisher spend a 1099 type form? Is it all in the author to figure out, figure it out, or does the agent help? Okay, is it treated like a regular old freelance contract? So, in my experience, there's a lot. Okay, so of the many there's reasons, many things. I'm there's many ways this can to, work too. So, the many reasons I'm going to stack on to my constant recommendation that people should get an agent. If you have an agent, your publisher pays your agent. Sometimes and, they don't, though. Okay, most of the time, in my experience. My agent is who gets paid, and then my agent pays me. And so my agent is the one that gives me like a very tidy tax document at the end of the year. Yes. And I have much Either less way, to keep track of. you get a tax document. Yeah, you do get a if tax document. If you're getting document. paid by the publisher, you get a tax document from the publisher. If you're getting paid by your agent, you get a tax document from your, your yes. agent. And there's various reasons why you might be wanting to be paid by either one or why your publisher might want to set it up so that that's true. You know, you're paid in part and they're paid in part. Um, so, you know, some publishers will be like, Allie, I wish to buy all the books from you. I will, you know, send the money to your agent when we have negotiated to send things to, um, some publishers will do the split right there at the publishing house and be like, okay, your agent gets 15%. I'm sending them the check for 15%. And then whenever you're getting a check for me, I am sending you the, the check straight to you. Um, usually it doesn't happen where you get the check and then you have to pay your agent out of it. It's usually yeah. either they pay the, the publishers pay the agent, publishers split the money along a pre-negotiated set of guidelines and send it part to the agent and part to the author. Yes. Um, And 
Now I'm curious if it's like an agency level decision or publisher level decision because I definitely uh, it, author agent level of decision. Okay. Publishers aren't like I've decided that we're going to handle <laughs> your money this way. This is something else you can negotiate in your contract if you it's a thing that you really care about. Yeah, um, so this is on the list of things to talk about potential agents with if you have super strong feelings about it one way or the other. Which I like guess. I don't know why you would have I mean, really strong about feelings money. about it, but I mean it could be a thing where if you need to be paid right away i mean and not right away by like i signed the contract and then i am paid right away but like you turn things in and you're like i'm turning things every in every six months and i need the check right then i can't wait two weeks you know sometimes that's a thing where your agent probably is going to add a little time onto the process right because the publishers have to mail the check to the agent the agent has to get it they process it they log it they check to see that it's right and then they are like okay i have to write you know the accountant's in today nope they're not in until next tuesday the accountant's in next tuesday they're going to write the check they're going to put it in the mail it's going to go out to the author so if you are like i cannot wait that week and a half i need to get the checks right then you might want to get your checks directly from the publisher um, you know, that's a circumstance wh- where that might happen. Um, you know, there's some agencies who don't necessarily want the entirety of the advance. They don't want to have to deal with the taxes on that, with all the rest of that. Yeah, it they, just depends on the size of the agency. It's true. They just want that 15% and not the 100% because if that's a check to them, that's their money, they have to report it, they have to pay taxes on it, they have to figure out all of that yeah. stuff. It's worth noting that I work in a medium to large size agency, so my experience is going to be different than somebody who has like an agency that has one or two agents and is operating out of somebody's home office or something, obviously. Um, however, either way that you you strike this, um, the your agent and your publisher are not going to help you figure out what taxes to pay on the money that they're sending you. No. And for a publisher, it's actually like you could sue them if they recommended you do something with the taxes and then you did it and it turned out wrong. So they are really not going to get involved in that because they don't want you to come back and be like, so I did the thing that you recommended and now the government says that I should have been paying them X amount of money for the past five years and it's all your fault. So yeah. Yeah, I need you to pay that. But it is, I mean, it, to answer all this specific question, I mean, functionally it is a lot like being a freelancer because it's not like if you have a regular salary job where for instance, your taxes are taken out of your paycheck and all that other stuff. Like, no, you're just going to get paid all of the money and you have to sort it out completely on your own. So it's yes. going to be very different than like, of your whatever full-time job you might have had in the past or yeah and in fact if you if you don't have an agent or if you do have an agent and you're getting your checks directly from the publisher and you also do freelance work for that publisher within the same calendar year you will get a 1099 that has that freelance expense and your advance royalty expense on the same document considering it as the same sort of money so there's no it's not like an advance or royalties are like special magical unicorn money like you're just (laughs) getting you're just getting this 1099 that's like we paid you ten thousand dollars this year five thousand dollars of it was for editing this book and five thousand dollars of it was like the 25 percent on signing for your advance so i will say it 
for most people, it ends up being worth getting an accountant because it can get complicated and because especially if you're getting, I mean, you're getting paid in like a big check for like $10,000 or something like you really want to make sure now, it's not only a matter of paying your taxes accurately, but a good accountant will also be able to help you set up a way to keep track of your finances such that you like, you're definitely going to have the right amount of money left over when you need to be paying your taxes and they can help you set up quarterly taxes and all this kinds of stuff. Like I know a lot of people do their own taxes and I know a lot of people who have accountants and if you don't feel super comfortable doing your own taxes and you can remotely afford hiring an accountant, I would recommend doing so because it can be such a nightmare to sort these things out if you don't do them correctly. And it's very embarrassing and expensive and shitty. And if you aren't a person who feels like your calling in life is to do your own taxes, don't feel like you need to out of some sense of pride or something. However, if you're a person who is making a living on graphic novel advances from a single publisher and not doing a a set of freelance work for a lot of different clients, independent people, book covers, interior illustration, family pet portraits, also graphic novels. If what you're doing is just making this one comic, your choice, on, of course, of whether you need an accountant, but that's a pretty straightforward set of tax math yeah, situations. Deductibles and shit. To accountant or to not accountant, it is it is up to you. Yeah. Um, okay, so our next question is a subrace question, and so is the start of the question after that, yes. which we, um, if you want to know more about subrights, we recommend that you go listen to our subrights episode. Um, but these are things that I don't know that we covered there, so let's talk about them. Yes. Um, do publishers only cover certain regions? I've seen graphic novels published by more than one house, but on different continents. Well, if you're publishing a graphic novel in English, yes. probably at the most, it is being published in the US, in Canada, and in Australia, and in the UK. Yes. Like, there's other places in the world that speak English, but probably your book is not going to be like published as an English language book in China for the English market in China. So if your publisher, we're here in the US, I'm going to use the US as our kind of base example. Um, if your publisher's in the US and they're publishing your graphic novel, they're definitely going to be publishing it in a single edition in the U.S. and Canada. They may also publish that edition also in the U.K. and Australia. The U.K. is, is more common than Australia. There are some publishers, like the publisher I work for, that has many different satellite branches around the globe. Also like the publisher that I used to work for. Uh, and... If you publish a book in the U.S., you can sell your publisher translation rights um, so that they have the power to sell it to other publishers. So your book 
though, is not automatically going to be published by all of the 38 international branches of your publisher. Um, It is going to be published in the US and Canada, maybe in the UK, and maybe, maybe in Australia. Um, And those other publishers that are satellite branches or, you know, main branches of your publisher that are in different countries, if they want the book, they're going to have to buy it from your publisher, in which case you get more money, which is good. Um, Or maybe those other branches are not the best choice for your book, because you're selling your book to the US arm of this publisher and the, the arm of your publisher that's in China does textbooks mostly. So what your sub rights team at your publisher is going to do is see if there's graphic novel publishers at with other houses that are around the globe that would want to buy rights. And for the most part, that is how um, graphic novels are published by more than one house in other continents than North America. I use China as an example here because we got a question about what the market is like in China. And I don't know anything about the market in China, except that I hear it's a growth opportunity, but like that, <laughs> that's like literally what I know about China. Um, so then our next question is about moving printing operations aboard ships for worldwide distribution, oh, which I think sounds amazing. However, <laughs> there's a lot given, of logistical problems. Also, like given what we just talked about, about sub rights, that books that are published by U.S. publishers are mostly going to the U.S. and Canada, it doesn't necessarily make sense to put a printer on a ship to get the books to go around the world, because what people are doing instead is printing the books for the U.S. and Canada, and then putting the files for the books on a file transfer site for the French publisher to be publishing that their own edition, which they print out a place which is geographically convenient for them. And it doesn't make sense to put the two printing operations together because no. the text in the book is different. I'm trying to think if there's some... I'm just wondering what the implications are of printing books in international waters. Like, is there some kind of advantage, maybe some tax advantage to it that? It sounds super know. awesome, though. Like, Ask your accountant about it. <laughs> I love this idea of, like, mobile mobile printers. I wanted more, like, on the scale of, like, the Gowanus Canal or something, having one of those, like, God, what are they called? An espresso or something? One of those, like, yeah, compact... espresso machine. Yeah, the... that, like, prints single uh, digital copies of books and just kind of go up and down the canal and print copies of your genius novel are probably more likely works in the public domain. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and I don't know, this, this idea sounds like very, we're taking this very seriously. It's like very next gen and exciting. And I feel like it would be cool. But I mean, the other thing is just that a lot of times printers are where they are because that's where the paper is or that's where the ink is. And so you're like, you could move the printing operation to a ship in Alaska, but then you you would have to ship all the paper there. So why not just do the stuff where the paper is and keep the shipping only to like the pre-cut amount of paper that you need to get into all the books and not ship the entire tree to Alaska. I'm just thinking of like Alaskan cruise lines, but with printing, you know, you, you go on a cruise and you end up with a book. 
That seems good. You end up with like some kind a of like container ex- ship of books. Yeah, it'd be like some kind of extreme version of Comics Camp where you literally go, it's just like a six-month book, you draw a short graphic novel, they print it on the book, you get off the book, accompanied by a palette. Like that's how it works. You have more luggage when you get off the book than when you when you got when you get on the ship. Yeah. So yeah, this, this well, person whatever. did not give us a lot of detail about what exactly they were considering here, but yeah. whatever it is, it sounds awesome. But I, I'm not exactly sure how feasible. It I'm is. not going to invest in this company right now, but I'm glad to know that it's something people are thinking about. Um, so we had some other questions which were not going to talk about at all. Uh, <laughs> one of them is indexing. Uh, shout out to all the people who seem to be as excited about indexing as Allie and I. Uh, maybe but we don't future... actually know any more about indexing than we no. did when we talked to Jill, uh, at which point we were surprised to learn that guilds of indexers existed. Uh, so we'll try to discover more inter- information, but I think that's maybe a longer discussion. Yeah, than we have like this. a list of topics that we want to get through on this podcast. But then when we get into the no man's land of we've explained all of publishing, then we're going to start getting into the weird shit. And maybe part of the weird shit will be like, let's just email a bunch of indexers randomly and see if one of them will come on our podcast and explain how to do their job. Um, I will say that if you go and look at the American Society of Indexers, there are a variety of webinars that you can purchase getting into the minutia of indexing. And actually, some of them sound really interesting. It is a very weird, cool job. And I went very far down that rabbit hole. You can also buy a pair of sunglasses that say indexers rock on the arm, which I found so charming, I almost died. So if you agree that indexers rock, you can apparently get some sunglasses that say that and advertise your enthusiasm to the world. Yes. Uh, we also got a question about panel planning. And we actually are almost at the recording episodes about marketing part of the yes. um, the whatever this is. The, <laughs> the cycle process. Uh, yes. Um, by which we mean, I think there's maybe five episodes before then which is like two months so it's not actually very close at all but we are close to recording them so we're going to save those conversations for the episode that's about conventions yeah the only thing i will say about panel planning is that you should definitely plan your panels ahead of time if you are moderating a panel you should make sure that you've talked to your panelists before the panel if at all possible and i personally highly recommend having a brief meetup before the panel where everybody could introduce each other if at all possible because it's nice when people have been able to talk to each other for like five minutes before they're in front of a whole room full of people that's my hot take on panel planning but we'll get into this in in more detail when we actually okay well thank you all for sending these questions yeah they were Um, really good i hope that we i think we did a good job we definitely answered them we talked more about teacup seahorses than I was expecting, but I mean, you know, that's a benefit as far as I'm concerned. Indeed. I agree. We'll have to think of another ridiculous example for future Q&A episodes. Armois armadillos or something. I don't know. That sounds amazing. Maybe they would they would be made of metal so that they would have like steampunk transformation powers where you could, you could animate them by the proper steamworks. See, so we're what are we doing with this podcast thing we should obviously just have like a children's an book IP series of, yeah, of weird animal stories that we're just making up 
while we're all uh, slightly dizzy from not having had dinner yet anyway. <laughs> okay, well, thank you all for listening to Graphic Novel TK, our first ever Q&A episode. And if you email us more questions in the future, there may be more Q&A episodes, which I know you're all on the edge of your seats awaiting. Just to listen to the two of us talk for an hour instead of talking to a third person. It's very exciting, this change of pace. Yes. Okay. Thanks, everyone. And we will be back with our regularly scheduled Talking to People Intensively episodes uh, with our next episode. Graphic Novel TK is co-produced by Gina Gagliano and Allison Wilgus and is brought to you by The Beat. You can find our show notes along with other comics news and podcasts at comicsbeat.com. Our podcast graphics were created by Shivana Sokdeo. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. You can follow us on Twitter at graphicnoveltk or email us at graphicnoveltk at gmail.com. actually am inadvertently digging on a friend of mine as I'm saying that who did actually do that exact thing. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Yeah, I'm sorry. We say that because I interrupted you fraudulently. I might delete this part because that's maybe too embarrassing for me. Anyway. Anyway.